Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Spring marks the beginning of our Adopt-A-Beach season and our volunteers are getting ready for their spring kickoff cleanup events later this month. This year marks our 20th year of collecting data as part of the Adopt-A-Beach cleanup events. At each cleanup, volunteers tally every single item of litter collected and the data is entered into our online database. We've learned a lot from 20 years of data, but the biggest takeaway is all about plastic. About 85% of the litter picked up from Great Lakes beaches is made partly or entirely of plastic. Our volunteers are on the front lines of keeping plastic out of the Great Lakes. But we know volunteer efforts alone aren't enough to fix the Great Lakes plastic pollution problem. Researchers at the Rochester Institute of Technology have estimated that about 22 million pounds of plastic enter the Great Lakes each year. We need to stop plastic at the source before it even reaches our beaches. Today, we're chatting with Andrea Densham, a senior strategic advisor to the Alliance for the Great Lakes, and we're going to talk with her about plastic pollution and how we can stop it at the source. So hi, Andrea. Welcome to Lakes Chat. Thanks for having me. Great to be here today. Great. Well, let's start with a little bit of context. You know, we've talked about plastic pollution on some of our prior episodes, but Give us, you know, we talked a little bit about some numbers, but give us a sense of how big the plastic pollution problem is in the Great Lakes and globally. It is a really big problem. More than 90% of the single-use plastic used ends up in landfills, and sometimes it eats, eats out of those landfills and into our rivers and streams and often into the Great Lakes, as our volunteers have found year after year. Um, we've and the, and the reason why this is happening is because production is increased. So starting in the 1950s, we were making about two metric tons annually of plastic. Now we're at 400 metric tons, and it's estimated that that will double by 240, 2040, and then triple by 2060 if we don't do things anything now to change that. That is a direct. That is an unbelievable doubling and tripling over a really short period of time. And it's not surprising that we're finding so much plastic in the Great Lakes. You know, as you noted, that 22 million pound number is just an estimate. That's just an estimate of how much uh, plastic is getting in the waterways. And we know that it is not just solid pieces of plastic, but pieces that slowly break down. We'll talk more about that, but it is a, a really substantial problem. And the last thing I'll say is that the greatest growth in plastic is around single-use plastic. Single-use plastic, uh, you know, a, a water bottle or packaging that when you're, whenever you buy is completely wrapped in plastic or has some packaging in it. Right now, that total is about 40%. Um, of all the plastic we're finding is, is made out of packaging. It's estimated by the time we get to 2060, two thirds of the plastic created is gonna be out of packaging. So we, we have an opportunity right now to change that trajectory and to make a difference. You know, even though I've you know worked on plastic issues for quite a long time now, those numbers are always just so staggering. Um, and, 
You know, I think a lot of times when people think about the sort of end result of plastic pollution, we think about the big floating masses of plastic out in the middle of the ocean, you know, what we would think is sort of unspoiled areas with all this pollution. Um, and certainly that's a, a key issue. Um, but that those big masses of plastic aren't necessarily the problem here in the Great Lakes, right? Our concern is more about the microplastics. So tell us a little bit about what microplastics are and why we should be concerned about that. Yeah, we microplastic is just refers to the size. So, you know, um, there's micro, which is one size that scientists use to measure the size of it. There's even nanoplastic, which is even smaller bits. And it is that piece of plastic. So if we think about the classic iconic uh, water bottle, it breaks down. Um, and it's made of, it, I think it's really important to think of what plastic's made out of, right? 98% of all plastic is made of fossil fuels, primarily oil or gas, and then chemical additives. So as that's breaking down from a from that one piece of that one plastic water bottle to little and smaller and smaller pieces, um, it is leaching off those, that oil, that, that gas components and the, and the potential chemicals that made it. And it's impacting wildlife as well as humans, because that's, that's becoming, uh, all of that is decomposing and coming into our waterways. We know that those Great Lakes, I, I live here in Evanston, Illinois, and, and, and that water in, in Lake Michigan is what I drink every day. And, my, and the water right next to me is water that came from Lake Michigan. And in there is most probably microplastic and nanoplastics. So it's a concern for all of us. And the last thing I'll say about that is that we've increasingly learned that the chemical additives and the petroleum byproducts can be a big concern for endocrine disruptors. So there's a real human health component to this as well that we need to pay attention to. But when you hear the word microplastic, it's just about the size. It just means it's really, really small. Yeah. And so, you know, going to sort of solutions to try and figure out how to manage all of this plastic that's gotten into our environment, you know, we're also used to sorting out the recyclable plastic from the trash at home or in the office. And I've always assumed that that plastic, when I dutifully separated it out into my curbside recycling bin, that it somehow got re repurposed and changed into something else, you know, that I was theoretically using down the line. But it's my understanding that very little of the plastic produced is recycled. Why not? And where does it actually go? Yeah, there are two big problems on the why not. Um, one is really about the manufacturing choices, about how, what types of plastic is created. Um, so it, I have a glass bottle of olive oil here and it's made out of glass, right? That glass is glass. There's one kind of glass, glass. I mean, there can be different colors, but it's not, there aren't 7,000 different types of glass in terms of recyclability, right? When it comes to plastic, there are an extraordinarily different sets of components using different chemicals, different polymers to make the plastic and, and make it into whatever their, the packaging is. And some of those um, are recyclable and easily recyclable. Um, and I say easily because it means what can our local municipality do, right? What can happen mm -hmm. here in Evanston or in some small town in Iowa or Ohio or New York, like what, what can your town do with that plastic? Mm -hmm. well, if it's not easily recyclable and it's not, if there's not a market for it, then it becomes trash. And more than 
and, and that's what the challenge that we have right now. The volume of plastic waste in the United States has been increasing substantially, right? Right now it's about 44 metric tons, about almost 300 pounds per person annually. And recycling rates, instead of going up, have been going down. And it's mostly about what kind of products there are. There just aren't, the products that are being created aren't very recyclable. So in 2014, the recyclability rate was around eight to 9%. We're about five to 6% right now. So instead of, so we're having plastic production going up and single use uh, packaging and we're having recyclability going down. That is a not a, that's not a win-win. That's a lose-lose kind of calculation. Yeah. And so that must be putting a lot of expense on our communities, right? If you're, you like I'm imagining, you know, I just went, my community actually doesn't have curbside recycling. I have to go to a, a transfer station. And so when I dump my recycle bin into that giant bin of plastic, if only four or 5% of that is per- recycled, there the my municipality, it must be having to pay to figure out where that goes, right? There's got to be some local cost for that. Absolutely. And it's especially hard for smaller communities. So when I'm from Michigan and when I go up north in the smaller communities, I um, am honored to go visit with family and friends. Those small municipalities, they also have transfer stations, but they have to deal with all of the trash. And, you know, I'll acknowledge that now that I live in Chicago and I go back up home, I'm a tourist, basically. And I'm bringing trash with me that that small municipality has to deal with. And they don't have the resources and the cost just continues to rise. And as other countries for for years, the United States was taking this plastic and shipping it out. And a number of years ago, those countries that we were shipping it to said, no more, we don't want your waste because we have nowhere to do with it. And it just ends up on our shores and and in a, in a, in a, you know, cost and and pollution problem for us. So they're saying to us, you know, in the United States, you have to deal with your own problem. And it really, really sits on the shoulders of local municipalities and think about our tax rates. You know, a lot of that has to do with the challenges our local waste haulers have to deal with when it comes to plastic in particular as something that has no other, no place for it to go. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, plastic isn't just a problem at the end of life, right? When we have to figure out what to do with all of that stuff. Um, But it's really polluting around manufacturing. So tell us about some of those concerns around just making all of this plastic in the first place. Yeah, and this is really, and I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a really important thing for those of us in the Great Lakes because we are producers. We've been an engine for the country for years, right? We produce beautiful things here, um, and it's really been amazing. However, some of that production has really caused damaging harms on local communities. Um, so more than 98% of all plastic is made from fossil fuels, primarily or uh gas and oil and some chemical additives, right? So we're in the the Great Lakes, we do a lot of that refinering, a lot of the chemicals actually come from factories that are in our region. There is the opportunity though, for us to move to other substances that aren't as poisonous. Uh, Our friends in Canada uh, in 2021 um, decided that we looked at at the production of, of plastic and what plastic was, and they um, now consider it to be a pollutant. And it's been added as a pollutant to their, from the, the Canadian EPA, the equivalent of the uh, of the United States EPA. And 
We know, um, and in fact, there was a really interesting recent report um, called the Monaco Commission on Plastics that looked at the link between human health and plastic production. And it really illuminated some of the great harms that happen, including the, the impacts on fenceland communities. That Those are the communities that live near those factories or work mm. in those factories. And the concerns there are is that there are multiple toxic chemicals that are used in the production and it can have really serious, well-documented um, human health challenges, you know, from asthma to cancers and everything in between. So if, if we find ways to reduce the amount of plastic produ production we do in the Great Lakes, if we move towards more sustainable alternatives, we're reducing the negative health impacts and hopefully increasing the health and well-being of our local communities. Yeah, and, and we, I would assume, uh, just based on the patterns in this country, that those plants are typically near other manufacturing facilities. And a lot of times those communities that are sort of remaining, that are near manufacturing facilities are, you know, what we might consider environmental justice com communities, you know, communities that have a long history of, you know, impacts from manufacturing. So it, it sounds like it really is a serious problem for a lot of our communities. It really is. I mean, I, I'm from southeastern Michigan, where we had a concentration of manufacturing that caused a lot of pollution. You know, if you go when I drive back home or if I go downstate here in Illinois, I can drive through places like Joliet or East St. Louis or Gary, Indiana areas, and I can see that pollution and the concentration of it. And the and the folks that live there, the, the amazing, hardworking people that live there, are living with the extra burden of that of that pollution, and and it really really matters. The other thing I just want to note is that this also has an impact on climate change, right? Mm. It is estimated by 2050 that plastic production could account for at least 15% of greenhouse gas emissions, which is really substantial. So you know, not only if we're moving away from plastic, are we reducing the toxic impact um, for environmental justice communities, but we're also really addressing climate change. So it sounds like more and more reasons <laughs> to move away from plastic and figure out how we can prevent it, you know, from causing any of these problems to begin with. So, you know, I know one idea that's been um, talked quite a lot about is this concept of extended producer responsibility or EPR. What is that and, and how can it help with some of these problems? Yeah. So EPR sometimes is also known as projects, uh, product stewardship. So it's a strategy to place a shared responsibility um, of the product management on producers and other folks who manufacture um, the products and, and other entities to get them involved in the product supply chain, right? So that they make a decision up upstream. I'm going to use this as an example. It's another like thing I have. So this is a spice and it's made out of glass, right? Mm -hmm. So the who made this spice star could have made the choice to make this spice star out of plastic. They had a choice. There's a decision point in the supply in making this wonderful product, which is yummy, by the way, for local <laughs> provider. Um, it, they have a choice when they're doing it. Are they going to put it in plastic or are they going to put it in glass or something else that um, has is as more recyclable like metal? And when they, we want to help them and we want to incentivize the choice to make more sustainable choices so that at the production side and at the end of use side, use and it, it, we're having less of a really bad impact. So we, what's been happening for such a long time is we have laid these responsibilities on the public at the 
end after the product's been created. We're trying to go upstream and encourage the producers at the beginning to make those decisions. Um, and, and really, this means that we're advancing policies that incentivize sustainable packaging and manufacturing that expand new markets, have the potential to do that, and hopefully grow new jobs in our region um, with solutions that decrease pollution and decrease the kind of um, pollutant tints that happen when these um, kind of items are manufactured. Got it. And it seems pretty common sense to me. Has it been tried anywhere? Has this idea been tried anywhere else in the U.S. or globally? Has it been successful in sort of shifting those decisions made, you know, before anybody starts putting their product in in stuff? Yeah, uh, it has. Uh, Across the world, it's been, it's, this idea started in the 90s. um, And it's been, um, uh, in countries all over the the world, including our neighbors in Canada, um, places like Spain and South Korea, the Netherlands, Portugal, um, and the different, um, our friends in Canada, each one of the provinces has their own EPR type of models. And some are much more productive than others. And and they're all learning in real time how to be better. In the United States, just last year, California passed and the governor signed a really um, forward thinking uh, EPR bill. And it really talks about source reduction. So, I mean, I think source reduction is really important for us to think about when we're talking about linking EPR and plastic. What we want to do with these extended producer responsibilities or, uh, or product stewardship models is we want the, the choices, we want to change the decision choices on the product construction, right? We want to reduce the amount of plastic, single-use plastic that's created and increase other more sustainable op- other options to happen. And we want to try to incentivize reuse as much as possible. And, and, and that's also something that's really important. But I, I think the, the thing, one of the things I want to note is that this movement towards uh, EPR and product stewardship, I like to think about it as sort of like the great work we're doing on, on moving towards cleaner energy, right? We need to move from, we have been moving from dirty, um, polluting energy that's having a damaging impact on our local community's health and well-being to cleaner alternatives. And that's happening and it's happening fast. And we're talking about that as a just transition. We can do a similar just transition with manufacturing, right? We can move from dirty, polluting, single-use plastic production to more sustainable alternatives. And we in the Great Lakes perhaps could be at the forward of that, the beginning of that and really moving us towards a just just transition to more sustainable and clean manufacturing products. Mm -hmm. And so you you briefly mentioned reuse there. Let's I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Like how I know there's also efforts to sort of incentivize um, re you know different reuse options. Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what does that start to look like? It's really it's it's a super simple idea and and incredibly helpful. Um, I live in Illinois, as I noted, and just this past week, two bills moved through the Illinois General Assembly. One uh, that would allow people like me to bring containers like this, which is a water bottle, which is reusable, to um, uh, to a restaurant or another place and refill it. Um, so that's one thing is to allow us, to, me as a consumer, to bring a reusable container and fill it with whatever it is that I want, as long as it's clean and it's I take good care of it. 
But the other thing is about water and water is so important to us. We know how important clean water is in the Great Lakes. I think in a way that maybe many others in other regions haven't quite had to face like we have in the Great Lakes region. We appreciate how important and, and critical it is to have good clean water. But the other bill that we're moving forward is having refilling stations. Um, every time someone puts in a new water fountain, they put a refilling station in there. So, and it's super simple. It just means though that more people have access to affordable, free, clean water that they could uh, fill with their own containers. And those type of reuse options, whether it's my coffee in the morning or it's water for me in the afternoon, those types of really simple solutions means that I'm not creating any sort of single-use item, no matter what it's produced by, and that I'm using something else that I can reuse over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I, I have ball jars in my house that are from my mom. Uh, <laughs> those those work perfectly well, and and they've last clearly generations. And there are there are objects that we can create that we can not have to produce one at a time, but we can reuse them over and over again. Mm-hmm. And would any of this, this just sort of occurs to me, um, I live in a house that was built in the 1800s, and uh, there's this funny nook in my kitchen, I finally figured out, I think it was a milk bottle um, spot, you know, where the, in the old days, right, that you'd had your reusable milk bottle, and a milkman would come deliver it, and so you'd put your... Um, used ones there, he'd take those, put some new ones in there and keep, you know, hopefully reusing those bottles. Would any of this legislation sort of incentivize manufacturers to do that kind of thing, to go back to that model? Like, okay, if I buy milk in a glass bottle, I'm happy to bring it back to the grocery store and get another one. My, uh, there's a couple co-ops I go to that I still can get those glass um, uh, milk containers. And as a kid from a dairy farm. Um, I didn't grow up on a dairy farm. My grandparents had a dairy farm in a, and they really loved it in a glass container because they felt like their product actually tasted better. They were, they had a lot of pride in what they, um, the milk that they, they grew and they were much more happy to see it in a glass container. Yes. These EPR systems and product stewardship really try to incentivize manufacturers big and small. So from that small little dairy to big global um, companies to move towards reuse. And that reuse is really beginning to happen. People are thinking about it and moving forward with it. Haagen-Dazs was, has tried out a reuse system. Um, and they, one of the things that I've heard from them is that they love that it actually keeps their product tasting better uh, than it does in other containers. So, I mean, I think that is one of the things we're trying to do. When we incentivize positive things. It's extraordinary what creativity is out there. And that's what we have to unleash. We have to unleash new creative creativity that we're full of smart people that can help us come up with great new solutions, even that could even be better than what we have right now. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like, you know, a lot of times in the conversation around plastic pollution, um, you know, people talk about taking away things, right? You know, you can't have this or you can't have that. But it sounds like if we were to shift towards some of these concepts around, um, you know, product stewardship, extended producer responsibility, however you want to frame it, reuse, um, that as a consumer, we could still get all the same things. It's just going to come in a a different package, right? Literally just a different package, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that package can just look slightly different. And in fact, like where I was just talking about, it might actually improve the quality of the, 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 the product that you're getting. I think about this in the context of styrofoam all the time. Mm-hmm. Previous to styrofoam, we had other ways of getting 
food and other things to people, styrofoam is actually not a very good, just on pure taste, it does not make the thing that you put in it good. And it's awful in the production. It's very, very toxic. And it's not good to reheat the lovely items that you just got. Bad, very bad. Do not do that. Very toxic. Um, so there are ways in which when we move to new um, new packaging that we can actually improve the quality of the experience that we're having and even the products that we're receiving. So this all just sounds super common sense to me. Um, what are the barriers? You know, why why isn't some of this already? You know, uh, you, you mentioned some states where there has been legislation on this and some pieces in the U.S. And it sounds like globally, some other countries might be a little further ahead than us. But, but what's in the way of this? Um, why aren't some of these practices being implemented here in the U.S.? Well, I gave a hint to that. So we're moving towards clean energy in our country, and we're doing that across the globe, especially in some of the countries that I noted. Um, and as we're doing that, we're reducing the amount of gas and oil and petroleum chemicals that we're using. Well, if we've if the industries have created um, supply chains that have set up models where you're doubling and tripling, as I talked about, right? The projections are to forty to to 2040 doubling, 2060 tripling. Well, those models might look like that because the other use of those products are going to be going away and they know it's going away. We know we're moving towards sustainable energy. And I'll say, and I five years ago, I would not say we'd be where we are with EV vehicles right now. It is just it's massively exploding and it and it's amazing, right? Or how much solar is on people's homes or how much wind is out there. We've seen it happen and happen fast because the infusion of money for incentivizing, um, you know, new smart ideas and making and putting the infrastructure in to make that happen. That's what we need to do on this side. The, the resistance to it is that some markets and some folks have built their markets on the use of petroleum and gas and chemicals. We need to incentivize them to move away from that and to move towards more sustainable, cleaner alternatives. Um, that's why it's called a just transition, because we need to move from this yucky stuff to the good stuff. But we need a bridge to do that. And we need to make sure that the folks who work in the industries that are doing the petroleum and the chemical work, that they'll have jobs on the other side. We're successfully doing that in the energy space. We need to do that now in the manufacturing space. What would you tell our listeners? I know our listeners are interested in getting involved, um, speaking out on this. What would you say are some steps that our, our listeners can take to, to get involved and, and start helping with this transition? We really need to start talking with our elected officials about this move. Uh, we need to, this is a, this is going to be a, a process and we're going to need to um, move forward on it, but quickly. And the reason why I'm comparing this to the transition we're making in the energy space is I think, again, five years ago, none of us would think we'd be where we are now. But if we, but we all invested, we put our oars in the water and we work towards a similar goal. We now need to do that here. We need to put our oars in the water and move towards a goal of towards um, a healthier, more sustainable manufacturing and reducing, absolutely reducing the source production of single-use plastic in particular. That means you as individuals in any city, town, or state that you live in, talking to your elected official, whether that's your mayor or your state representative, your governor, or your elected members of Congress, 
all of them, all the different levels of government need to hear from you that you care about this and that you actually understand what these things, this idea of extended producer responsibility is. And you want to move in that direction. You want to move towards a just, just transition away from this toxic and yucky uh, single-use plastic world to a much healthier, more vibrant world because we love our Great Lakes. We want to keep them healthy and vibrant. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. This has been really informative and inspiring. I think you've laid out a great vision for a positive future with all of this. Um, and I do want to let our listeners know that we ha do have an action alert up right now for our federal officials um, around this issue of extended producer responsibility and lays out just some of these principles. So if you want to, you can visit uh, greatlakes.org slash take action and find that action alert um, and start today telling your elected officials that this is the direction we need to go. So thank you so much, Andrea. Appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as opportunities to sign up for updates, to stay informed about Great Lakes issues, and how to get involved. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode is released. A special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast.